for the commander's voice my uh, guest today is chris langlois he is the author of the book how easy be company company became a band of brothers it's a uh, a book for young adults or children young adults to kind of get them exposed to history and it's based off obviously the story the famous easy company second of the 506 parachute infantry regiment uh what makes everything really fascinating here is that chris is the grandson of doc eugene rowe who is uh, featured in the book and in the hbo miniseries chris good afternoon welcome Thanks so much to have me, Ben. Appreciate you. Uh, so first off, as uh, we had a chance to talk before we started the interview today, and uh, as I indicated, I think everyone's really excited about, you know, your connection to the Band of Brothers. Everybody's seen the series. Most paratroopers I know have read the book. Uh, so I've got to assume, though, being a son and grandson of veterans myself, when you were growing up and, you know, Eugene Rose, just grandpa to you, uh, did, I'm sure a lot of these stories didn't even come out. He was probably just a, a great granddad. Yeah, he was Paul Paul, um, and uh, he was a kind of a cowboy kind of guy. Um, he spent his entire career after the war in construction, mainly road construction, and uh, so he wore cowboy boots and uh, wore cowboy, you know, button-down shirts. And he worked on, you know, all growing up my life, he rode um, backhoes and bulldozers and pickup trucks, and uh, spent a lot of time, you know, scooping sand and gravel and stuff out of the out of the rivers loading them up on 18 wheelers and those guys would go off and and build roads and things like that so we knew nothing i knew nothing about his time in the war um and and when the book came out in 1992 i was a sophomore or junior at lsu and i remember my mom handed me the book and she's like you know your grandpa jumped on d-day and i said oh, okay so i flipped to the back of the book like a good college student and uh, looked up his name and he's on three pages in band of brothers the 1992 the original book from Ambrose. And um, so I read that real quick and handed the book back to her and said, well, obviously he didn't do anything in the war or else he'd be on more than three pages. Oh my goodness. That is kind of an interesting take. But I guess when you're a sophomore or junior in college, it's kind of where your head's at. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's well below beer and women on the, uh, on the <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, tragic hole in my heart that I'll never be able to go back and ask all those questions. I just, I didn't know what I didn't know like a lot of us just didn't know. So at what point in either your career or just uh, family history, what have you, did you suddenly decide there's probably more to this story and maybe I need to ask some more questions, even if, you know, Pawpaw's not here to ask directly anymore, what you know, motivated you to start digging further? You know, it was really, it was going to Paris and Normandy in June of 2001 for the world premiere. And we got notified late in the game that HBO was inviting all the families over. Shane, who played played my grandfather, had emailed back and forth with my aunt, you know, asking questions, doing his research. But still, we had no idea of the scope or anything like that. So even when she was talking with him, we still didn't, you know, no bells rang off that this was going to be a big deal. Um, and we found out late that we could go to Paris for the world premiere. And so like 10 or 12 of the family, the Roe family, um, went and I remember checking in and for some reason I was in the front of the group and I said, you know, we're here with the Roe family. And they're like, oh, you're going to love episode six. It's all about your grandfather. And the only thing I can think of is why, why would it be about my grandfather? He's on three pages of the book. Um, so that was the beginning of the journey for me. 
and meeting all the actors and the and the crew and and those guys and and really I would shake hands with the actors and say hey you know I'm Chris I'm a grandson of Doc Bro and they would shake their hands you know back at me if that makes sense um they're like oh man your grandfather was a hero and your grandfather was an angel um and I'm like where's all this coming from and so we watched episodes every Sunday night just like the rest of America and the rest of the world and that's where I learned what my grandfather did in World War II. I, I almost feel embarrassed to ask this question because it's kind of, the answer is going to be kind of obvious, but what was the impact of actually watching episode six for the first time? You know, like, it gives me goosebumps. Um, so a lot of people don't remember the world before the internet, but we had bulletin boards back then. You probably remember that. And so I watched that episode and there's a scene in six where they're getting shelled and I think it's Lipton who's calling for medic and Roe and he's they're like medic, they're screaming medic and he's not moving. So the camera's looking down on him in the foxhole and he's not moving. And I thought they're portraying him as a coward. And um, so I went on the bulletin boards right after and everybody was like, uh, you know, just high praise for Roe and, and, and what he did. And nobody says anything negative about that scene. And I thought, well, then maybe I'm too close. Maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing it from an angle of, of as, a, as a grandson. And so when I watched it again, I realized it's really kind of a genius scene because what it showed was the reality of war that most of us will never see or feel or endure, um, where you're scared and you're broken down, especially Bastogne. You're cold, you're wet, you're tired. Your buddy's getting blown up, um, surrounded. And Roe struggles for a second like any other human being would, but then he gets up and goes. And that's the whole definition of courage, right? Courage is not yes, sir. You know, going forward you know, without fear. It's, it's in spite of your fear, you get up and do your job. And so I really, that scene has always stuck with me for two reasons, because it hit me so hard at the beginning in such a negative way. But really when I watched it again, I really think it showed the, what these guys had inside them that many of us would not have the ability to get up and do your job in, in unmeasurable conditions. Understood. Now, I got to ask, a lot of my uh, listeners and viewers probably don't know that you're actually a, a, a serving police officer as well. When you first saw uh, episode six and you had that reaction that he was being portrayed as a coward, had you been a cop for a while at that point? No, I didn't become a cop till 2007. So, so now being able to go back and watch it later and having been in a, a, a profession that requires you to kind of put on that, you know, the proverbial and literal armor and, and I don't want to say change your personality, but I know as, as a former soldier, you know, Ben hanging out with you and having a Coke and talking is a different guy than Ben Powers when he's getting ready to jump out of the airplane. I imagine that Officer Langlois might be a little bit different than Chris. So did the experiences of being a police officer help you understand that transition he had to go through in the foxhole? Like, I got to go from being Eugene to being Doc. It's time to put my Superman cape on and go, but I need a second. Yeah, absolutely. Because you become you understand very quickly um, in this job where you, you do, you put on that armor and, and it's, it, you wake up and it's generally when I'm getting dressed. It's, it's funny that you say it because it's generally when I flip that on or, or button up that, that awesome blue polyester um, that this may be the day that I die. You know, this may be the day that somebody kills me for what I do. Um, and so, but that you, you can't train yourself as you already know, you can't train yourself to go run into danger. Um, that is a anti 
um, survival instinct and, and you either have it or you don't. Those people exist or they do not. Um, and so I think I've learned that I am one of those people. I have always run to those hot calls and um, without fear. Um, you know it's there, you know the risks, um, but you go anyway. And so I fully appreciate what those guys did becoming a cop, whereas before civilian Chris would have never really grasped that concept that you get up and go and you, you, you may catch a bullet, you'll never see it or never feel it, never hear it, um, but you go anyway. Oh, understood, understood. Now, as you got to be more involved in this world, you get to go to the world premiere, you start meeting these actors and start meeting folks. I'm assuming you had an opportunity to meet some of the living veterans at the time and over the years. Did anyone ever share with you any anecdotes or stories about your grandfather that you may not have understood either from the three pages in the book or, or watching the, uh, the series that they might have a couple fun stories about how he was or, or anything you could share with the, uh, the folks listening today about uh, your grandfather that we might not otherwise get to know? Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, McClung told me a couple of good ones. Um, they were in Holland, so of course they're on dikes. And so you're sitting on the dike and then it's a low land and then the Germans on the other side on their dike. So, uh, but there were a couple of guys wounded and apparently my, my grandfather went to, to McClung and said, hey, listen, I need you to help. You need to go out and, and get these guys. There's a lull and it made, it made it sound like there was an agreement, that, that a ceasefire, if you will. And so McClung grabs his rifle and my grandfather's like, you can't, you can't take your rifle. It's a, so humanitarian, if you bring a rifle, they're going to shoot at us. And he said he really had to work on McClung because McClung <laughs> McClung's one of those guys didn't go anywhere without his rifle. Um, but he eventually convinced him to leave, you know, leave his rifle and go get it. And um, but there was another one. He said McClung was dug in in a foxhole in the dike. So I mean, they're you know down a little. We call them a levee back home in Louisiana. But so you you know you dug into the side of a hill basically, and and there was some foxholes up ahead. And McClung said I saw this foxhole just get mortared and just blows up because I just know those guys are dead. So of course he calls for a medic and Roe comes up and McClung's like, go up there. And so he runs up there and the two guys are absolutely not hurt in one in any way, shape or form. But he said, I, I felt so guilty because we're all in foxholes and I'm safe and sound. And then I made him go run, um, which is another attribute of the medic. You know, I could have done it. You know, how do you run into danger um, without a weapon? Everybody else is hunkered down, getting as small as they can. And, the medic's got to get up and run and he's got to go. So um, just another testament to the, to the, all those medics. They're just unbelievably heroic in their actions. No, that's fantastic. So at what point did you decide that you needed to, I don't want to say add to the story per se, but make it available to a wider audience. You know, obviously the, the book itself is not for kids. The movie is probably not advisable for kids, but this is right. definitely, as, as folks say, it's a beautiful illustrated book. I'm going to ask you some questions about that in a minute. But uh, so when did you decide that this was a project you needed to take on? You know, it, kind of a, kind of a sad um, angle. Um, when a lot of these guys started dying, you know, when, when we started losing Winders and Compton and Garnier and Malarkey and Babe, you know, what those guys all had in common was they still went to schools and still spoke to kids and told the stories, which was so important. You know, these are, this, that's the real life. That's not a book. It's the real man standing in front of you telling you what happened. And so when we started losing those guys, I thought, you know, we're losing the ability to reach kids and tell these stories and soon they'll all be gone. So that was my impetus, really. And I thought I would do a PowerPoint presentation and so I could just send you a thumb drive and anybody could do it. And then I thought, I don't know how to do PowerPoint. Um, so I'm not that technically savvy, but I can write. 
Um, even though I'm from Louisiana, um, I can still put some works together with, a, with some help with friends. But so that was my, that was my, I, I, I'll go this way. You know, I, I like books. I have a lot of books. Um, uh, I, I like the feel of a book in my hand. I'm not a, I'm not a Kindle kind of guy. So I thought, you know, let me make it um, something that tangible. They could see and they could hold. They could see the visual and then read the stories. And, and we could still reach kids and keep the memory of these guys alive. And that's what it's all about. No, very cool. And it's, it's, it is a great book. Uh, that's for sure. I enjoyed going through it, kind of comparing it to what was in Ambrose's book. Did you have to de-conflict anything with the folks who'd actually published Banner Brothers or with HBO? I mean, I realize it's your grandfather's story. It's a piece of history. Anybody can write about it. But that title, Banner Brothers, is so intertwined with the miniseries and Ambrose's work. That Was there any legal things you had to go through to be able to create this? No, and I thought about that, and some people brought that up to me. But then, you know, Malarkey had written a book and Compton had written a book and they had all used Band of Brothers um, in the title. So as long as you didn't, you know, use HBO's image, you know, that font or anything like that, um, which I didn't, you know, as long as you didn't copyright, you know, plagiarize anything without giving credit, um, I didn't have any issues at all. So I, I just played on the fact that it had already been done. And so I'm just another guy using that Band of Brothers title. And um, so no, in, in that regard, I didn't have any issues. Nobody's come to me yet and, and said, you can't do it. So if somebody else did it and got away with it. Then I figured out, you know, big publishing houses did it. Then, then little old Chris could do it too. So very cool. Very cool. So how did you uh, meet the illustrator? I know that that uh, woman named Annika Hellman from the Netherlands is your illustrator. She has beautiful work. I, I was wondering how you got linked up with her. She is uh, she is amazing because I can't even draw a stick figure. <laughs> and uh, so I would, in fact, when I would kind of draw out what I was trying to do, I'd have to label, this is a, you know, this is a person. I mean, I, it's that bad. It's that ugly. I'd have to label what everything was. I actually have a cop buddy who's a London Bobby. And um, I had told him this idea years ago and he goes, well, you've got to, you've got to get in touch with Annika because she does this beautiful art on the back of bomber jackets. And, um, and she does people from around the world mail her their leather jackets so that she could draw on the back of them. It's, um, it's an amazing talent. So that's how we got connected. I have never spoken to her on the phone. Um, I don't, um, it is all, it was all done through Facebook messenger. I would take a picture. Uh, here's what I'm trying to do. And we would message back and forth. And so, um, you know, God bless the internet and, um, and we, we made it happen. And so she would send me, you know, sketch it out and pictures along the way. And it was very few times where I said, I, I think I'd like to do change that a little bit. Um, and there was a few times where she drew it and I go, Oh, that's not even what I was trying to do. And she goes, that's what it looked like. And I go, yeah, I know that my art is that bad. Um, I get it. Um, so it worked out really well. And sometimes I tell people this, sometimes I think Annika drew a book and I put some words to it because the first words out of people's mouths is the art is amazing. And it really is. So, but that's good because you want to draw people in um, and get them interested. And then hopefully they look to the right side of the page and read some stories and, and learn a little bit along the way. No, sure thing. Uh, now, is this, do you make this freely available to classrooms or how, how do we get it into kids' hands? So we've, uh, the family started a, um, a nonprofit. We have a 501c3 called the Band of Brothers Family Foundation. And I have a, I have a hundred books right over here to my right that I bought right before COVID hit. And um, so that was the goal. You know, we, we've raised some money. We sell challenge coins and things like that. And we raise money. And um, that's the goal is to get this book um, at, at no profit to myself um, into schools 
and reach and reach and teach. That's uh, I love that phrase. Reach and teach as many kids as, as possible. Um, I've got a buddy that I've just been messaging with in England, um, and he did a little fundraiser on his side, and he he put two books in schools over there. So it's in Dutch, it's in French, it's in English. Um, so the goal is to to get it in the classrooms as as, as many times as we can. So with COVID, unfortunately, we got kind of shut down, but hopefully with the new fall. Semester's coming up. Schools will be back in. Um, I can mail, you know, at least this next hundred books and get them, get them in classrooms. Very cool. That is really cool. So, being from Louisiana, do you speak French at all? I, I don't. I put, you know, I took, uh, <laughs> I took, I took two years in high school and um, living in Texas now. I speak a lot more Spanish than I do uh, French. I've lost all my, but I don't get to practice my French over here very much. There's plenty of Spanish practicing over here, but. Um, did you have the opportunity to get over to France very often to promote the book or just, I know you got to go to Paris, but that was like 20 years ago now. So, yeah, I've been very fortunate, um, uh, with the book, um, I've used parlayed that into a, you know, an excuse to justify a uh, business trip. Um, but I, I've, I've connected with uh, Tim Gray and the World War II Foundation, and he had several events over the years. Uh, with the actors up to 20 of the guys over there doing book signings and signings in general and uh, as a fundraiser for his nonprofit his foundation which is excellent they do documentaries I can't recommend it enough but um, and he's let me kind of tag along on the coattails and sit at the end of the row with the other actors and then as they come down and people buy my book and get all the actors to sign it and I sign it so I've been lucky I've been to Bastogne um, doing a couple of signings and I've been to Normandy a couple of times doing signings so very, very blessed. Um, but it's, I tell people, this has been a wonderful experience for me. You know, people really connect to to Doc Rowe because he's a different kind of character as opposed to just a, a trigger puller. Um, and so, and, and I think that was another genius um, on the, on the Tom Hanks and the producers and those guys to show war from that angle. Um, so people really connect. And so they're, they're very excited to meet me. And I, and I explain to every time, you know, I was just born, you know, I didn't do anything special. I was just lucky to, to be born two generations later, but I've met some really, really wonderful people, um, who've been impacted by Banner Brothers and Doc Rowe and to hear them tell their stories and, and their kids, uh, come up and they're dressed in the whole, uh, reproduction and they're like you know your grandfather inspired my son to get into reenacting and 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 it's just it's heartwarming um, to see the impact and, and it's great because if if we don't get the next generation remembering these guys then then they're gone and that's that's a, that would be a terrible tragedy yes sir and that that is a fabulous legacy to hear i've got i've got one more question about your grandfather we're, we're kind of at the end of my time here but at the end of episode five in uh the scene where uh Moose takes over the company, but then he gets wounded. And then, uh, so Winters and I think it's Lieutenant Welsh have to treat, treat him until Doc Rowe can come up. And they didn't do a very good job. And he just takes them to task. Uh, no regard for rank. He's respectful, but at the same time, he's furious that he doesn't know how much morphine's been uh, in, injected into the casualty. They didn't do anything by SOP. And he just really dresses, you know, two of the senior company leaders down. Did that strike you as tying into your grandfather's personality or was that more of an invention of the writers? You know, I think it could go both ways. You know, I, I think my grandfather at a young age um, with that responsibility, because you have to remember, Roe is the only medic in Easy Company that goes from D-Day to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. And he joined right after Taco. He joined at Camp McCall. So, you know, he had been there for the long haul. He knew all those guys. Um, and, and I'm, I, I think medics had a, a certain, a bit of, you know, rank doesn't matter. Um, 
you know, if, if there's a general on the ground, you know, he gets treated the same as, as, a, as a PFC. So I think that's, you know, all the script is made up. Um, it has to be, but um, I, I could see my grandfather's personality coming in there, especially at that stage of the war where he had been around the men that long, that he would, he would have that regard um, to dress them down. Um, and, and they would not be mad in any way, shape or form after it was all said and done. And, and uh, so I could see it. I could see it. No, oh, well, that's outstanding. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. that. That happens to be my favorite scene in the series involving Doc. I really, I, I admire the uh, the character's ability to do his job and have concern for, you know, no dis, no regard for rank, but concern about the, the, the wounded troopers. And, and that, yep. that speaks very highly of, of, of Doc's in regards to what branch of service. So right. I, I really appreciate you joining me today, Chris. Again, for everybody, the book is called How Easy Company Became a Band of Brothers. It is part of Chris's Reach and Teach uh, initiative to it, be able to communicate the uh, legacy of our World War II veterans to today's students. Uh, he's got a nonprofit, so I, I urge you guys to uh, reach out. You can find the book on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Uh, it's a uh, definitely, definitely worth your uh, time to check out. So, Chris, once again, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Man, I really appreciate you. All right, have a good day. All right, cheers. <laughs>